This course of study was provoked by a question that came to me after I had preached one Sunday morning and in conversation with some of my colleagues here. And I finished up with... Do I look weird sitting down? I, I feel weird sitting down. <coughs> I finished up with 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 15. And we read it, it reads this way in the King James, Sanctify the Lord God in your hearts. Be ready always to give an answer to every man that asketh you a reason of the hope that is in you with meekness and fear. Well, Saint, when you see the word hope, you really need to, I mean, that's, a, that's a, an operative technical term for New Testament saints. You really need to ask yourself a question or two. Don't just breeze over that and attach to it a colloquial English meaning. It's an English word. It translates to the English Bible. But it's a very important biblical term, and you need to understand what's behind it. Hope is not iffy, uh, the way it's used in Scripture, particularly when God is in view. And so, the hope that is in you, 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 15, it's well worth asking. You really need to ask yourself at some point, what is the hope that is in you as New Testament saints to which Peter makes reference here? Very important to understanding uh, the immediate scripture and its context. And so we ask the question, what is the hope? We have a blessed hope, a happy hope, as we indicated, we referenced last week. Titus chapter 2, the happy hope is the appearing, the imminent appearing of the great glory. It's actually, the way it's worded in the original text, there's a warrant for changing the word order in English in the translation. It's the appearing of the glory of the great God, even our Savior Jesus Christ. So it's the appearing of the, that's a happy hope for the saint. And the word translated blessed there is the word, literally the word happy. Uh, you might think that's a frivolous notion with God. Was God happy? Well, Everybody wants to be happy today. I want to be happy. There is warrant, there is reason, there is a basis for the New Testament saying to be happy. God is happy, wants you to be happy. It attaches, when you study it, to the intrinsic goodness of God. If you would be happy as a saint, you would know something about the intrinsic goodness of God. God is happy with himself. Why? Because he had pizza for dinner? No, don't mean to be flippant, but what outside of God makes him happy? Does God depend on something outside himself? No, he really doesn't. So his happiness is a self, what? A self-involved happiness. Why? Because of his intrinsic goodness. Now, this comes from study. It's not something you'll go to any particular passage of Scripture and, and see that definitively so that you will memorize that and remember and always have a snappy answer. But God's happiness is rooted in his own intrinsic goodness. And if you would be happy as a saint, you would learn about the intrinsic goodness of God, his goodness with respect to you, his goodness with respect to his activity among the saints, and it will change your outlook. It will change your demeanor. But that's something that is a, is a, a function of your spiritual growth. Our happy hope, Titus chapter 2, ought to make us happy. It's a gracious provision of God, the, the soon appearing of Christ, the great glory of God, even our Savior, Jesus Christ. 
And I carelessly, I, I know I've told you this, but I'll remind you, I carelessly presumed that the hope here was probably the soon appearing of Jesus Christ. I frankly don't believe it is. With further study, I think, I don't think it's unrelated, but I think it is something which, when rooted in the context, cannot simply mean the soon appearing of Christ. I think it has everything to do with the theme that is woven through First Peter. Pastor, we've talked, you and I have talked about, we've talked about the fear word. We're going to look at that, First Peter chapter 3, verse what, 6 or 7. You have a couple words for fear, fascinating words, phobos, phobia. Obsessive fear. Well, maybe not. Maybe not. I mean, as an English term, maybe. Oh, he's got a phobia. He's got a mania. Phobos. There is a reasonable fear of God. There is a reasonable attitude of a wife to her husband. Now, this is a little bit of a delicate thing to preach, and, and typically, I mean, teachers, pastors, preachers, don't pull us out of context and say men ought to fear their, their, I mean, women ought to fear their husbands. There's more to that context. But it belongs in that context, and why is Vanessa laughing? <laughs> She's wearing an Oregon sweatshirt. I really love you today. Oregon. Oregon ducks. Yeah. Okay. Um, there is another word for fear. Let me ask you, who, who are the word merchants among you? Don, you don't count, and Kevin, you can't answer it. Lynn, I'm going to pick on you because you don't mind being picked on. When someone talks about craven fear, what do you think? You ever heard that term used? You ever used it? Okay. We're going to let you slide. Who wants to jump on that one? Got a teacher in the back there? Craven fear. What's craven fear? <clears throat> if you look up the term in the dictionary, it's not usually used in complimentary fashion. If someone has craven fear, they're, they're really driven by, by timidity, even cowardice. There is a word for fear. Here, let me, let, me, let me say this and then we'll leave it. We'll come back to it later in the hour. Is it possible... Should you be fearful, is there a reasonable fear response to the stimulus of a loud truck's air horn and you look behind you and you're in the fast lane and they're bearing down on you faster than you can get out of the way? Reasonable response to be fearful. Yeah. Now, the term phobos is used in some good context. It's used in some context that we would not recommend. But don't be too... Don't be too don't don't be dismissive of the word phobos. Here, First Peter three fifteen. Do it with meekness. Meekness is one of the parts of the fruit of the spirit. Galatians chapter five, and fear. It is a reasonable response to a legitimate stimulus. It's a legitimate response, reasonable, understandable response to stimulus. It is not the kind of thing that makes the dog on the end of the leash just jump and jump and jump. He's unfamiliar and he's back and forth and back. He's jumping, 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 trying to get away from what you're trying to introduce him to. It's not, shouldn't be, unreasonable fear, obsessive fear that may be a function of an, of a, a, an emotional response, maybe. Now, one of the difficulties with this word we'll look at is the fact that it's only used about four times. So it's hard. Peter uses it twice. Used it once in verb form and once in noun. <coughs> Do it with meekness and fear. 
Be ready always, always, and this means virtually incessantly, to give an answer, to give a respectful answer. It's iteo, it's, it's equal to equal, to the one who asks you. There's nothing in the context that suggests that you, hey, 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 uh, I got something you need. Um, I wouldn't pull you down on the floor and put my foot in your neck, but I mean, someone my size, I might say, hey, listen, I don't know what you had planned, but you need this. That's not what's in view here. That's not what's in view here. What's in view here is someone who has looked at you and will develop some basis for saying they have a right to ask you because guess what? They've looked at your conversation. Peter uses the term five, five or six times. He uses it three or four times in First Peter. He uses it twice in Second Peter. It's our word what? Kevin, again, we were talking anastrophe, anastrophe. How is that going to differ from peripateo? Those are two words that can both broadly be used to describe manner of life. Peripateo is more the way you order your footsteps one after the other. The placement, it has to do with, um, well, that's, that really is, is part of the lexical definition of the term. How do you place your steps? Anastrophe, I believe, I have, I believe, and I did a little extra study on it for this uh, class, has more to do with maybe a little broader term, but its emphasis tends to be your manner of life as reflective of a reference point. That's the conversation term that Peter uses five or six times. <clears throat> The unbeliever may not look at you and say, oh, listen, uh, I'm not a Bible-believing Christian, but I sure understand Christianity because, well, common sense, and I can tell that you're a Christian. Probably not if he's an unbeliever. What he ought to be able to do, witness abundant scriptural support, is he ought to be able to, this fellow over here, now I've been watching him, you know, he comports himself with dignity. He's not a rabble-rouser. I've never seen him strike anybody. I've never seen him pop off in anger. He's, um, he's probably been working on this most of his life. He's done a pretty good job. His parents did a wonderful job raising him as a kid, probably. Now, I don't know if that describes him or not, but I'm using him as an example. I hope that's okay. Um, He's a pretty good guy. He's a straight shooter. I would expect his responses would be reasonable. We're going to draw a distinction. We're going to give a basis for distinguishing between agathos good works and kalos good works. And the pastor has made the point several times. He has a favorite reference for this. The good works that can be seen and as a result to glorify your Father in heaven. You know what? Peter agrees with that. Peter agrees with that. You know what God the Spirit may know as he looks at those good works? He may know that they're actually agathos good works. But they demonstrate, they manifest outwardly as kalos good works. Do not expect the unbeliever to say, oh, listen, wow. Um, I can tell, I've been studying you and I can tell that the good works you do, um, that's got a witness that you know the Lord Jesus Christ and that influences everything you do. Don't expect to get a blue ribbon from the watching world for your righteousness. 
They will say, oh, listen, I wouldn't expect that guy to end up in jail. He's a straight shooter. He's a pretty good guy. Never seen him beat his wife. Um, he's a pretty good guy. Don't expect them to give you a blue ribbon for righteousness. Kalos? Agathos. They dance in the same space. You don't keep track of Agathos. Your Heavenly Father, the Godhead. The world may keep track of your Kalos without you realizing it. All right. So I undertook to put this in context, understand it, by way of review, new relationships. This starts with two relationships of the three that are mentioned in John chapter 14, verse 20. I am in the Father, Jesus saying to the disciples, and this is on the first page of your notes there, in the upper room, you are in me and I am in you. Now, the I and the Father doesn't get preached together with those other two relationships as often probably as it should. But the you are in me and I in you, you in me is spirit baptism. First, uh, First Corinthians 12, verses 12 and 13. God the Spirit places you, immerses you, inextricably, can't be undone, into a relational realm of intimacy with the risen, glorified Christ. A little bit technical, but it's accurate. That's spirit baptism. Puts you into relationship to Christ. Christ in you, God uh, regeneration. The God quality of life born in you. That's responsible for a lot of things. Those two relationships are going to inform everything you do with your Christian life. He's also given you a new resource. Grace saves you, Ephesians 2, verses 8 and 9, for by grace you saved through faith, and you know the, the, the text. But grace also supplies the power to face temptation and trial. Romans 16, verses 25, 26. Some of you may wonder why I went there, but I went there because there is a good news of grace beyond the grace that saves you. And you read about that in Romans 16, verses 25 and 26. And you have a term in that passage which says that one of the reasons that this good news actually stabilizes Christians. You can't stabilize a Christian until he becomes a Christian. The good news of grace stabilizes the life of the Christian. We've taught on that here. <coughs> okay, First Peter chapter 1. I'm going I'm, I'm to try not to rush, but I do want to get into, verse, into chapter 3. So, um, 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 3, blessed, and that is well spoken. And by the way, when this word is used in Scripture, it's not just complimentary. It's well spoken based on Scripture, based on what God has said. These are the things God has said. You are blessed in the heavenlies with all spiritual blessings. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 3. And if you want to know what those are, it's not just complimentary. You're pretty, you dress well today, I like the way your tie matches your suit. No, it's the good things about you based on your relationship to the risen glorified Christ. Here, well spoken, is the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, which according to his abundant mercy... Now, Kevin, this is kind of interesting. Kevin, Don, and Courtney, and the rest of you, I, I almost have to make this. One of the merciful implications here is not just that he saved us, but that he begot us to a living hope. It is out of mercy, mercy informed what he did, not with respect to initial salvation alone, but with respect to, are you being saved right now? Courtney says yes. I know he's based that on scripture. I'm not going to argue with him. 
We said yesterday or last week, we did this quickly. I saw on the video. Wow. You're being saved right here in process. You got saved here when you believed the gospel, responded to the truth of the gospel. Here, verse 9, chapter 1 of Peter says, is going to be the finish point of your salvation, even the salvation of your souls. What's your soul? Dolores, darling, I mean, darling, what's your soul? Just real quick and dirty. What would you say? You're trying to make this a test question. <laughs> feelings. Nothing more than feelings. Where did that come from? Is that from, what is that from? Cats or? Huh? It, Carl, you deal with that. But it's your, your emotions, for lack of a better term. That's to where your emotions are rooted. Your, your bodily appetites, the appetites that are yours because you are human. Your sorrows, your... Uh, we know what we mean when we say so-and-so is too emotional. Here's the problem. We try to pigeonhole this stuff. This is cal cal calculating rationale. This is all emotion. Most of the time, not so. They kind of step on each other's feet. They both influence your mind. But your soul is where your emotions are rooted. So what have we said when we said the saving of your soul comes at the end? What about, oh, well, I mean, I, I don't think I'm that emotional. I mean, I don't think I look too stupid when I get emotional. Just understand, folks, your emotions are not saved. And this is the root through which the sin nature batters you. It batters you through the soul. You got you to fight on your hands. You got, some, you got a scrap on your hands. You got to keep the emotions under control if you're going to live the Christian life with victory. That's not going to be saved till the end of your salvation. When, you, when your body is saved, it, nobody disputes that their body is not yet saved. The finished work of Christ, the benefits have not yet been applied to the physical body. Here's a gentleman that's got a few more years in the rearview mirror than I do, but land of Goshen, as you look at me, it's obvious I'm not 29. My body needs saving. Right? The work's been done, the benefit has not yet been applied. Same with your soul. It must be disciplined by your regenerated spirit. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, which according to his abundant mercy, he hath begotten us again. That is regeneration. That is new birth born in you. That is the God quality of life born in you. He hath begotten us again unto a living, we're going to translate that living, not lively, hope. What do we say about hope? Romans, wow. Romans chapter Eight verses twenty-four and twenty-five. You don't have to turn there. I'll read it. You can turn there if you want. But Romans chapter eight. Here's what you should think when you see the word hope. <clears throat> Courtney, you feel like taking next week off? For we are saved, saint, by hope. 
But hope that is seen is, but hope that is seen is not hope. For what a man seeth, why doth he yet hope for it? I called Lynn last night. I said, Lynn, can you print some stuff for me? She said, yes. <coughs> well, I hoped that she had been able to get it done. Until I saw evidence that it was done. Then I no longer hoped. I no longer hope for these notes that can be distributed during this class. Because here they are. Ridiculous to still hope for them. When you see hope, always ask, what is the promise? We are saved by hope, but hope that is seen is not hope. For what a man seeth, why doth he yet hope for it? So hope is not yet seen. The object of your hope is not yet seen. And why am I doing this? You've heard this numerous times. I want you to know where to root this in Scripture. Romans chapter 8, verse 25. But if we hope for that which we see not, we with patience wait for it. We don't doubt that it's going to happen when we're talking about God. The pizza may never get here. We thought it'd be here at 6.30. Well, it's quarter to seven, still not here. Maybe the guy just went the other way. Maybe he ate it. I don't know. But when it's God that has promised, we know it's going to happen. We need patience to wait for it. Now, if you go to Hebrews chapter 11, verse 1, hope, Romans 8. The relationship of hope to faith, Hebrews 11.1. 1. And this is something that ought to be second nature to you. <clears throat> now, faith, that's, you know, faith, is, faith is belief. Well, faith is, biblical faith is not just belief because Merriam-Webster defines it that way. Now, faith is the undergirding of things hoped for. Wait a minute. The thing I hope for, it's yet out in the distance. I haven't seen it yet, but, oh man, I hope it's. Faith undergirds that hope, convinces my mind of things not seen. Convinces my mind of the reality of the thing not yet seen. And I patiently wait for it. If I could just, wow. I need to lose 50 pounds. Well, I don't, but I need to lose 50 pounds so I can wear these. If I could just, I know I'm going to lose it. If I could just take advantage of that certainty that I'm going to lose the 50 pounds out in the future, I could wear those pants that are two inches too small for me. Now I could wear them today. Uh, not so much. This has to do with spiritual reality. How do you know that's going to happen? Because the one who promised is faithful. The promise maker is a promise keeper. He will do the thing he's promised. You need to be patient and wait on it. But if you can take that certainty, that reality, and bring it into present tense, you have functional faith right now. Every time faith is in view, that little metric is in view. Faith is the substantizing of the thing hoped for. Why? Because it's been promised by the promise maker. The conviction of mind of the thing not yet seen. Faith, hope, patience, they all work together. All right. Did someone say something? Belief. Faith is belief. But if you leave it there and make it static, you will ultimately have some difficulty when you try to 
contemplate its practical use. Here is a reference in Hebrews chapter 11 verse 1 that tells you a bit about faith and literally how it works. Faith enables you to take that certainty and act on it today as if it was already a part of your experience. Does that make sense? I see it as belief. You may. Um, and that's not wrong. What we're saying is there's more here. There's more here than just simply saying it's belief. You can believe a fact and not necessarily need to act on it. Faith, according to Scripture, permits you the way it works, according to this verse. It permits you to take the certainty which you have believed and use it. Are you seated in the heavenlies today in your present experience? What would you say? You try. Um, with all due respect, I try too. Almost everybody in this room would say that you're seated on an upholstered chair. Scripture says you're seated in the heavenlies. At the right, you're seated with Christ in the heavenlies. Says you're seated in the heavenlies right now. There's no way to appreciate that without you being able to say, wait a minute. God says I'm seated in the heavenly. That's the way He sees me. If that's an absolute certainty, we call it imputed, He reckons it to be so, and He doesn't have to wait on time. If He reckons it to be so today, I may also reckon it to be so. If I comport my life as if I'm seated in the heavenlies at the right hand of God the Father, is it going to change the way I react to circumstances? Is it going to change the way I react to temptation, which wants to become sin? Paul says it is in Romans chapter 6 and 7. He said, If you reckon yourselves dead to sin, the sin, the sin nature, it'll change the way you respond to temptation. And by the way, Scripture is pretty clear that if you don't go about it this way, boy, that temptation will pretty much get you every time. Now, the interesting thing about it is, Peter, I think, gives a clue over in chapter 3 that we can be dead to the sin nature, and if we're dead to the sin nature, we may also be dead to the sins, plural. We want to be dead. We want to reckon ourselves dead to the sin nature so that we are dead to the sins, the activity of sin, plural. Now, what I would suggest to you respectfully and, and, and to just say contemplate this. This may be a different way of looking at faith. But contemplate it this way. It is not enough to take the English definition. I mean, this is something about which Better men than I have argued for maybe millennia, if not, you know, at least decades and hundreds of years. Um, Louis Burkhoff wrote a book back in the mid-50s, and he, he, he wrote just voluminously and broke it down into three different categories, and this must be true, and this is the way you respond to, you have faith that the chair is going to hold you up, and and, but the faith that will permit you to get in. Blondine, the guy that took the guy 
on a tight wire across Niagara Falls. He said, if you have faith that I can do this, get in the wheelbarrow. Nobody got in the wheelbarrow. And, and really, what I would suggest to you is that that overcomplicates what Scripture says. When you contemplate what Scripture says, faith very certainly does, by definition, mean belief. But biblical faith works this way. You believe the thing that's promised, even though you haven't seen it, because you trust the promise maker. He's a promise keeper. Yeah, well, it's going to happen. It's, I believe this is going to happen. That's not doing much for me. Um, really, I mean, there's no football this afternoon. There's a little basketball. There's still basketball going on, right? I go home and watch basketball. Um, I'm going to worry about tomorrow. Um, I don't know when the Lord's coming. He's supposed to come soon according to Scripture, but I don't know. They've been saying that for a thousand years. Faith permits you to look at this, the promise that produced this hope. And live today as if this was going to happen before the punctuation of my statement. It's already a fact. It is already a fact of certainty. You just haven't experienced it yet. Because you have to wait on time, right? You've been waiting on time all your life. You're locked in space and time. Doesn't change the truth of it, but your ability to experience it has to wait on time. That pizza we ordered... Oh, wow, I can taste it right now because I've had good pizza before. But I'm not tasting that one yet. I'm hoping it gets here while it's still warm. But it's with the belief and the faith that you're able to experience the rewards that he gives you while you're still here. What, what may I suggest to you I'm not disagree, I won't disagree with you. May I suggest to you that what you're doing is you're basically compacting Hebrews 11.1 1 into a simple statement. You're not wrong. Okay. I'm spreading it out a little bit. The only way you can experience something before it happens is to believe that the certainty of it happening is so certain, <laughs> so certain that you just it's true right now. Even though, I mean, my wife loves me. I'm going to see my wife when I, I mean, I've seen her for 46, 47 years. But I'm not going to see her until I get. But I can remember what she looks like and Lord willing she'll be there when I get home. You can experience it. Your experience is a function of time, process. In time, when, you, when you're being real technical about it, you haven't experienced what hasn't happened yet. But if you can say, when God promised that this would happen, in my experience, from his point of view, it's a done deal. Has happened. It's. It has happened. Wait a minute. Y'all hear that? You've already been seated with Christ in the heavenlies. Amen. That's imputed truth. You've been made a son of God, even though Romans chapter eight says it hasn't yet been revealed in time how you're going to appear. Romans 8. The whole world is anxiously awaiting to see what the sons of God are going to look like. Here sits the Son of God. You want to know what a Son of God is going to look like? When He counts Himself to be in Christ, as Christ has said He is, when He counts Himself to be in Christ, He comports Himself as if 
the reality of that is a part of his present experience right here. That's what a son of God... You know what glorified humanity looks like? When you guys, when your present tense experience is informed by the positional reality that God's already rendered certain. You're waiting on it in time and don't let that become too burdensome. That's why you need patience. That's why you need patience. Patience in Romans chapter 5, you need patience to wait for the thing that's certain, to experience the thing that's certain. You've probably been doing this longer than you think. You may not have understood the technicalities of imputation, but you've been doing it. Good brother. Apparently, it's already true. Count it to be true. <clears throat> Count to be true the things that you first believed. You believed that God would keep His word with respect to everything, including the things He hasn't done yet. Count them to be true. And you have the practical benefit of their certainty right now. And by the way, i got to jump to chapter 3. There's a ton in... i tell you what I'm going to do. I'm going to put these... I'm going to see if Lynn will print up some more of these for me, the, the scripture references. I'm not going to get through this today. Go down to... He has begotten us to a living hope. What is the living hope? We have said, when hope is in view, always find the promise. What does he promise? The thing he's promised is the thing you have certainty, you have hope, you know. Hope is not iffy. You know it's going to happen in time because God has promised. So what is the hope? Go to First Peter chapter 3 and let's see if we can wrap this together. Now I have set, up, I have set apart 1 Peter 3.14. <clears throat> is here is a theme of Peter that is absolutely incontrovertible. He tells these people to whom he's writing, you're going to suffer. You're going to suffer. I don't want to... Well, you're going to. You're going to suffer. And he says to them, listen, you're probably going to suffer for stuff... It says faults here. Um... One of these verses in 1 Peter chapter 3, it's not, such, it's not so honorable to suffer for your faults. The word fault there transfers, translates hamartano. It's really suffering for sin. When I suffer for sin, I don't deserve a marching band or cheerleaders. I, don't deserve, I mean, I got what I deserved. But when you suffer for and here, as in, in chapter 3, you're back and forth between agathos, the good things, well-doing, and kalos, the profitable things, well-doing, but they're not really attached to the intrinsic goodness of God. If you suffer for sin, you got no, you got no gripe. You got no complaint. I mean, a complaint department is going to take one look at that and just crumple it up and throw it away. If you suffer for well-doing, if you suffer for righteousness' sake, verse 14, happy, happy are ye, and be not afraid of their terror. 
This is two uses of the word fabas. Neither be troubled. So if you suffer for well-doing, you are. this is acceptable with God. You're going to have to find that in the context here. Let me see. If you suffer for well-doing, this is acceptable with God. It is thankworthy. Saint, you're going to suffer for righteousness. Paul said to, to Timothy in 1 Timothy 3 verse 12, those that will to live godly will suffer persecution. You want to know what the will of God is for your life, young person? A part of His will for your life is that you will suffer for righteousness. You want to live godly, young man, that thought you hope the Lord calls you to the ministry or motivates you to go to seminary. I want to preach. Oh, I want to preach so bad. I admire my dad. Whatever reason. You want to live godly, saint, that never saw yourself in leadership as a, or as a celebrated emissary of Christianity. I just want to live godly. I want to live godly in my job. You're, are you driving yet? You're driving, right? FedEx? Okay, I'll forgive you. Um, <clears throat> he wants to appear godly to the people with whom he rubs shoulders. Those who will to live godly, Gird up your lines, young man. You're going to suffer some persecution. As long as that's a specific, deliberate desire of your heart, you're going to suffer persecution. It's not going to be fair. But you're going to suffer persecution. And by the way, it's thankworthy as far as God concerns. God is concerned. This is acceptable. You have thankworthy and acceptable used in two verses here. I can't find them now. I'm short of time. But it's the same word. It is thankworthy that you will suffer persecution. Okay, so knowing this, I'm going to suffer. Wow. First day, huh, gird up your lungs, you're going to suffer. I, I thought you were going to tell me where my locker was, how nice my uniform looked, what my bennies were, before you got into the bad stuff. First thing in the door, you tell me I'm going to suffer? That's not what I signed up for. Well, maybe you did. He gave us an example that we should follow in his footsteps. That's a part of Peter's discourse here. Oh, man. So, so what's that hope? What's the promise that I believe because of the faithfulness of the promise maker? He's also a promise keeper. Certain. But I haven't seen it yet. What's the hope that should motivate me now? As certain as it is a function of this, a, a, a central part of Peter's discourse that you are going to suffer for Christ. His discourse is also rich with the notion that you can be found worthy. Praise justly issues from men to men. We are to praise, we're to honor, we're to commend king and the king and governors and rulers in, in uh, duly constituted authority. 
praise issues to God. Three times in Ephesians chapter 1, to the praise of the glory of His grace. Praise directed to each member of the Godhead. Praise ye the triune God. That's biblical. Apparently praise is also scheduled for the New Testament saint. Commendation from the one who's keeping score, from the one who's watching. And I'm trusting you to go back and you'll find this in 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 3. I mean, chapter 3, verses 1, down through about verse 17. There's no good place to break that. Praise and glory. God has scheduled that the Son will share with you the acquired glory of glorified humanity. God shares His glory with no one. The Godhead. The glory of deity, but there is an acquired glory. Thou art my Son, this day have I promoted you. Have I brought you to the front? Four times at least in Scripture where the Father adds, bestows, commends good opinion on the Son in His humanity. And apparently He's willing to share that with you. Apparently He wants to share that with you. He's given you a resource so that you may be found worthy. Let me read verses 14, 15, 16, 17, and I won't interrupt. But, and if ye suffer for righteousness, 1 Peter 3, 14, for righteousness' sake, happy are you. I'm not always. And be not afraid of their terror, neither be troubled, terrasso. Well, actually, neither be troubled is the other word for fear. Um... But sanctify the Lord God in your hearts and be ready always. You've already accepted you're going to suffer. Okay? You're suffering for righteousness sake. Be happy and sanctify. Set apart Jesus Christ as Lord in your hearts and be always ready to give an answer to every man that asks you a reason of the hope that is in you. How do you put up with it? How do y'all put up with this? It's not fair. I've seen what they do to you. It's not fair. Having good conscience, remember the conscience is only as good as the information put into it, that whereas they speak evil of you, as of evildoers, they may be ashamed that falsely accuse your good conversation. And their good conversation is agathos. They're not seeing the agathos part. All they're seeing is the kalos part. They're seeing the stuff that they think is sets you apart as a halfway decent guy. But they may be put to shame who accuse your good conversation in Christ. Verse 17. For it is better if the will of God be so that ye suffer for well-doing, agathos, than for evil-doing for which they reproach you. You're going to suffer. God wants your behavior, your conversation, your manner of life, which overarches the steps you take, the way you order your steps. He wants your conversation to be so striking. 
people have a right to ask you, what's up with that? You may never lead them to Christ. They may never respond to the gospel, but at least you have a right to give them a respectful response. Why? Because of... There are other passages we could go to. The indwelling Christ, the God quality of life that is resident in you. The person of Christ indwells you. The hope is that you can look like it. You can take advantage of the resource. He's made a resource available for you to take advantage of so that you can look like who you are. And people would ask you, I don't, I mean... I know you said you're a Christian, but I still don't get this. I knew a lot of Christians, every time something goes wrong, they cuss. They throw things, they break things. I worked with a guy in Portland that took his Bible to work every day. And he read his Bible on his lunch hour. Everybody knew that because he told them. And um, that's probably where I should stop this. But he didn't have a very good reputation with Scrabby. Uh, that might have been while you were up there working in the in the Portland building, on the load crew or whatever. Oh, this is in Tualatin. Um, poor guy. He's a Bible school student, actually going to seminary, I think. Really crappy. Did not have a good reputation. You know what? You can have a good reputation among people with whom you work. I got disciplined on the job one time for cause. Um, and they said, well, I wonder what he's going to do. She's got a family. Wonder what he's gonna do. Another guy said, "Oh, listen, he'll he'll uh, he'll say it's the Lord's will. I'm gonna try to adjust to it because he's a Christian. He'll say." I thought, "Oh, they have been watching. Does it mean something? Have you told people you're a Christian? I mean, it's safer not to sometimes." I knew a guy in a church in Michigan that uh, told us when he was a teenager, he put a bumper sticker on the back of his car, Jesus saves. And every time he burned out and the back end went down, and I mean, in the old days, you know, continental wheel, and you lowered the back end, the front, I mean, that was cruising. And every time he hit the, hit the gas and spun the tires, and that Jesus saves went down. A kind of, he finally took the Jesus saves off the rear bumper. I think it probably would have been better for him to <laughs> just moderate the driving a little bit. It's safer for you if people don't know you're a believer because eventually they may ask you, what's it done for you? What's it doing? Because I'm really concerned. I'm afraid about gas prices and food prices. How about you? And then you have a reason to tell them with meekness and fear and appropriate rational fear, reasonable fear. Um, but meekness, don't get him down on the ground and force feed it to him. Okay. Let's close with a word of prayer. Father God, <clears throat> there's, there's too much here to get at one time. Um, we pray that the truth of Scripture might be um, real to us, might impact the way we live. And if that means change, then change then so be it, change. Um, and we would thank you for your grace um, to us and every good thing that you provide and all the resource that you provide. Amen.